And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay! Uh, on the Muppet Show tonight? Okay. <laughs> if only we were So there. how have you been? I've been okay, Gary. You know, this hasn't been the greatest start to the year, and I'm reading slowly, and I've got all sorts of things to do, and I'm late. I feel like I'm late on everything. So that's not making me the cheeriest chap, no. you know? Um... My fantasy anthology's just headed off while well, was getting through copy edits. Best of the year's been delayed a month, which was a bit annoying, but happens, I guess. Um, and I'm just getting focused on the projects I have to be working through the you know the rest of the year. That planning some travel, you know? And how about you? Uh-huh. This is the this is the doldrums as far as getting any work done related to our field, but it's a it's a it's a time when I I do a lot of paper grading and thesis marking and proposal grading for my students and getting that out of the way, getting some other annoying things out of the way, filling out questionnaires that people send me. I'm reading a manuscript for a university press, which is taking, which is strenuous uh, to say the least. But in another week or so, I start my sort of year of things. I'm going to um, a friend's birthday party in in New York next weekend. We need to talk about how to schedule a podcast. Yes. A couple of weeks after that is uh, ICFA, International yep. Conference for the Fantastic. And that should be big fun for you, for you. I mean, we've done a couple of podcasts live from there with the sounds of crickets and alligators in the background. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see what we can do, do this time. Yep. Actually, we actually discussed one that we will try to do there, but that's something to come back to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, that's. I don't really have anything like that. I have... Um, Maybe if things, if the stars align, I'll be at the national convention here in Australia in April. But my next thing like that, of course, isn't until October when we all come together in, well, I'll say sunny Brighton, but let's be realistic. It's not going to be sunny. And uh, we get to podcast and wander around the UK, like recording, you know, like sort of minstrel podcasters for a while. We can certainly do that. It's... Um... But that's several months off, and between now and then, uh, I will be doing different things. We will, and probably other podcasts. I may go up to I may go up to Wiscon for a year because I was a judge this year. I may go to the Locus Awards. I should make a decision about where I'm going. Um, I definitely will go to ReaderCon. Yes. Now, and for those yeah. for those people in the states who don't realize this yet, because I don't think it's been announced, and really want a chance to see Margot Lanigan, it's her first ReaderCon. Fantastic. And possibly her only U.S. convention appearance all year, I would think. Uh, depending on whether there's something on the West Coast, I guess, while she's teaching Clarion. Yeah. Well, that should be fun. I, I envy you Redacon. I think it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, it, it always is. Yeah. So, you know, and have you been reading science fiction, Gary K. Wolf? You know perfectly well what I've been reading. I just sit the couch. And one of the things, actually, was your year's best anthology, which I now find I apparently have reviewed a month earlier than I should have. And with the wrong title, but we'll forgive it. I'll forgive you. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I love it. It's, actually, <laughs> It's a lot of stories. It's a lot of work. And there was a 700-page yeah. Guy K novel, which was absolutely worth the time I spent on it. But there is time to be spent on it. Yes. I guess you were lucky. Let, let's just... We, I know we don't know anymore. We try not to touch on your review column too much just because of... The fact that everybody out there should be reading it in locus, but mm. uh, first of all, I mean, you saved some time by having reviewed one of your books from this month last, actually last year, and then dropped it into the column. 
And that's, that's true. A, fir- a first novel which will be up for the, uh, eligible for the Crawford this year, I guess. And that's Sophie, um, Sophia Samatar's A Stranger in a Laundria. I hope a stranger for a, a stranger in a laundry will be actually up for a lot of awards this year. Mm-hmm. I think it's a remarkable first novel. I don't know why um, Small Beer Press postponed it for several months. I mean, for most of a year, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it may have had to do with building up some uh, interest on it, but it's got astonishingly good blurbs from right, Ursula Le Guin and everybody else you can think of. Yeah. And it really is a, a, a stunning book, so I hope it does very, very well. But yeah, I, I did cheat. I wrote that sometime last year and just dropped it in because I, I can save myself an afternoon here. How good is it? Um, first novel. Uh, for a first novel, um, I think it's I, I think it's stronger than most of the first novels I've read in the last five years, okay. easily. Now, I, I guess the, 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 what I'm tempted to do there is sort of name a few first novels and have you go, oh, gee shucks, except for that one. But um, it's an epic, fa- it's a fantasy novel? It's a fantasy novel that undermines everything you expect about a fantasy novel. It has a map in the front. It has so, sort of esoteric, Celtic-sounding names for places. And it really looks like it's going to be one of these quest narratives that just go on and on and on. It turns out to be a, a novel, and we're seeing more novels about this kind of thing lately and more stories about this kind of thing. It really is about the importance of storytelling, about the importance of language. Yeah. And it's really more a ghost story than an epic fantasy. Okay. But one of the things, one of the things she writes about in this, and our listeners can inform me if I've missed something, because I don't think I've seen a particular scene in a novel that does what this particular scene does, where... The, the young man who is the major protagonist, who is, uh, whose father has been an accountant and a, and a trader, um, has learned how to do accounts. But he suddenly realizes, under the tutelage of this old master from a nearby urban area, that letters and words can be used to do more than business transactions. You can actually put letters and words together to make stories, and the mm-hmm. stories don't to be true and it really is an attempt to dramatize that moment in everybody's life where you realize there's such a thing as literature okay wow you realize that language actually has a use that goes beyond the transactional magic it, it, it sounds like an intriguing book it's, uh, it's very and that's coming out in april there is a book actually that you review and I, i'm glad we're going to talk about it. it's going to sort of tie up i, mean, I realize we sort of are, are I don't know how would you put it politely. We're 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 doing this one really on the fly just to try and make sense. I mean, I have it in in mind to 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 drop a a name, I guess. Clang. Mm-hmm. I was at dinner last night with China Mieville and some yes. and uh, James Bradley of this parish and um, Isabel Carmody and and Marianne and Marty uh, James' wife I have a great dinner. And before when when China showed up, we we're talking about podcasts, and he was saying, you know, it's nice when you know podcasts have both nice discrete sections in them, the episodes, and then you can say, you know, like at eight minutes and 25 seconds, you know, t- talk about this, and at 35 minutes, you know, we talk about that, so they can skip through and not hear, you know, save their time, not have to hear all the little boring waffly bits where we waffle. Like like what we're doing right now. Right now. So, so this would be that you'd skip over. Um, and because this is got, they, our podcasts tend to kind of blend through because we're sort of following through a trackless waste, we don't always make sense. But since we're talking about books that we've read and, yeah... I, our podcast has very distinct segments of five minutes each. The problem is that the transitions between them are ten minutes each. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's probably about right. Anyway, 
Well, in the last couple of weeks, a book came to our attention as a result of one of our own podcast episodes, uh-huh. and that is uh, Benchmarks Continued, the FNSF Books Columns, Volume 1, from 1975 to 1982, by the late, great Olgis Budras, uh, which came out from Ansible Editions, which sounds perilously like David Langford and Company, uh, in is. November of last year. Now, this is the follow-on, first of all, to a, a Hugo Award-nominated nonfiction book, uh, benchmarks, which collected his uh, Budras's, almost said Baldrus's, uh, Budras's uh, uh, galaxy columns. Yes. And I have to declare at least a slight interest in the sense that this, his column was why I started reading FNSF. Or I stumbled across FNSF and it's why I kept reading it. It's this idiosyncratic, intelligent, fascinating column uh, that not masquerades as a review column, but is a I guess it's a, a true fan review column in the sense that there's this really intelligent, informed guy who's a very good writer and a very good editor writing a column, but not afraid to kind of wander around into you know, his own knowledge, to skip around stuff and be quite idiosyncratic in a really clear, intelligent sort of a way. Every month was an intelligent essay. I, I did the same thing. That was the first time, well, not the first time, uh, the first time as an adult I subscribed to FNSF yeah. was because of that column, because yes. I wanted to see what he had to say. And it was completely, by the standards of any kind of critical uh, reviewing that you've seen since, completely insane. Yeah. Um, he, was, you know, <laughs> he, would, he would ostensibly review a book and write an essay and mention the book in two sentences at the end because he wanted to write about this topic. He would review his own novels. <laughs> um, he, he would review... He did, one of the things that's fascinating about the um, the book from um, from Ansible Publications is that he loved to review nonfiction. So he's reviewing all kinds of nonfiction books: Barry Malzberg's book, Damon Knight's Turning yep. Points, and the very first edition of the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, yep. which he did say intelligent things about in the midst of quibbling over the details of his own entry. <laughs> which there was, is, yeah, it's not really what you do, is it? Well, you cannot come away from his reviews without getting a sense of having talked to a really smart person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really knows the field, but who may not have been terribly interested in the review at hand. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's also, I mean, I guess because he was such a skillful writer, um, mm. he just throws in sort of little bon mots that kind of live on. I mean, I think the one that you touched on in your review was what Howard Phillips Lovecraft of Providence, 1890 to 1937, was a man endowed with proofs that he was undesirable. And you kind of go, really? And goes on, his father died in a madhouse when he was young, his mother raised him, and then died in the same place. It's just this really interesting way of kind of walking into the story of Lovecraft and writing and a review of him. Yeah, it's an insight with Lovecraft which strikes you as being exactly right and explains a lot about his life and his fiction. Um, and yet it's it's very succinct. And you're right, the, the argument comes after that sentence. That's a writer. That's a professional writer thinking, yeah. okay, here's the hook, yeah. and now I'm going to bring yeah. you in. And, um, and, and I think he also manages to do it in such a way that while some opinions have changed and he lauds some books as being timeless that proves, prove not to be, mm-hmm. that the um, essence of the reviews transcend their time and remain interesting and rewarding to read it's a if you're interested in science fiction it's an interesting book to read i think it's an interesting book to read uh if you're interested in science fiction if you're interested in in both how to write and how not to write criticism (laughs) because there are excellent excellent examples of both in this i think one of the reasons the book is important and, and aj 
did eventually win the Pilgrim Award from the Science Fiction Research Association for his criticism and scholarship. Yeah. yeah. Based on this, based on on benchmarks and a few other things, um, but he was um, he was he, the, the 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 backstory of this, which I'm not sure that even David Langford is aware of because I was involved a little bit at the time. Uh, Southern Illinois University Press was publishing a lot of nonfiction books about science fiction yeah. um, back in the 70s. They, they did a lot of volumes from the Eaton Conference, for example. They did some volumes that have been edited by Eric Rabkin and Robert Scholes. And one mm-hmm. of the volumes was uh, Benchmarks, was, was, um, was, was the Budras thing. And at that time, the intention was entirely to follow up the Galaxy columns with the FNSF columns. Sure. And as many publishers have discovered over the years... Publishing science fiction criticism is not a gold mine, so no. Southern Illinois University Press discontinued their series. Shockingly, uh, I think enough, it went yeah. to the University of Georgia. So basically, the second volume never got done. There were some small books that uh, the Bud was published, I think, with Borgo. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apart from that, his criticism has been unavailable. My argument, uh, and and we are sort of previewing the review, but I, this is something I do feel about because Budras is one of the people who taught me how to write criticism, is that. Everybody in the field, everybody who's interested in reading about the critical history of the field knows about Damon Knight's In Search of One, but they, knows, they know about Athling's The Issue, uh, James Blish's the, the Issue at Hand. I yeah. call him Athling because you people in Australia have cluelessly named the award after a pseudonym. <laughs> I think we, we knew what we were doing at the time, actually, Gary. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it leads one to believe that the award is actually for a pseudonymous science fiction criticism, which could be... Even more fun. But anyway, anyway, we all know about the, the prehistory involving Damon Knight and James yeah. Blish. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the 60s and 70s were as important with a handful of reviewers. For a while, there was Avram Davidson doing reviews for FNSF. But to me, the two key reviewers uh, that at least formed my idea of what reviewing could be were Joanna Russ, who was reviewing for fantasy and science fiction before Budras and overlapping somewhat with Budras. Yeah. And then himself. Yeah. Most of most of Russ's reviews from FNSF were collected by Liverpool a couple of years ago, in a uh, maybe five or six years ago now, in a book called *The Country You've Never Seen*. And everybody should get that book too. Yeah. Um, the Budras thing in FNSF is when he was really getting into his stride as a commentator. And you're right; there are two reasons for reading it. One is I think it's a model for uh, not necessarily how to write criticism or reviews in formal yeah. science, but it's a model for how to talk about science fiction. Yeah. Okay. And it is fascinating to see him review the first volume of the Book of the New Sun and say, basically, you know, Gene Wolfe is asking a lot of us to buy into a quarter of a million words when we don't even know what the third or fourth volumes are going to look like. Yeah, which which he was. And, yeah. But which he was, exactly. But then yeah. Budras also said he's one of the best writers we have, and this is probably going to be worth waiting for. And then by the third and fourth volume, he's saying, okay, this is one of the great works of literature, yeah. period. And then um, to, to flip it around, he was also very uncomplimentary about a Joanna Russ novel. Mm-hmm. He, well, I think that was Picnic on Paradise. No. Maybe. maybe. I, I, I don't have a copy of the book to hand. so. But I, I remember sort of doing that thing you do when you get a nonfiction book sometimes where you flick through the index and you sort of looked around to see wh- who else he had reviewed just to sort of so, – so I could find little highlight bits – and that was where I went. Oh, look at that! Yeah, he's not very complimentary about that book at all. With I mean, not being uncomplimentary uncompl- about Russ generally, but just about 
the novel that he reviews in the book. What he was talking about with that particular novel, and may have been, and chaos died, we'll have to look it up, um, was in, in context that he was in awe of her ability to write short fiction and her earlier fiction, yeah. and disappointed in giving what he knew, given what he knew about her as a writer. Yeah. Uh, and I think there, there are other judgments you write, and I can't remember titles offhand. There are books that he thought were just absolutely terrific that I haven't even heard of. Yeah. That have disappeared. Um, and there are books that um, have since probably become more or less classics that he was had mixed feelings about. Yeah. But again, the, the the shift in his attitude toward a reviewer between Galaxy and FNSF was very interesting mm-hmm. because because I knew him well during this period. I was just beginning to write articles about science fiction, and we'd meet in a yeah. bar, and he'd stuff I'd read and tell me what to do. Um, I I think that when he was reviewing for Galaxy, he described, I know, he described himself simply as an investment counselor. I'm okay. just here to tell you what books to buy. And that's the kind of standard workaday author's attitude when assigned to review books. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to tell you what to buy. The, by the way, one of the worst reviewers among professional writers was Theodore Sturgeon. Really? Reviewed for Venture Magazine back in the early 60s, I think, companion, short-lived companion magazine to FNSF. And at some point, you just got down to doing a little chart. You know, author, title, what's it about, buy, don't buy. Oh. Virtually no argument at all. Um, and it was completely disappointing. Budras moved from that idea. He moved from the idea, I'm not here just to tell you what to buy next next time out. Yeah. I'm here to talk about whatever I want to talk about, and I'm just going to use these books as springboards. <laughs> some brilliant about the books. Sometimes he's brilliant and barely gets to the books. Uh, sometimes he's just cranky. Yeah. Uh, it's true. I think it's very true. I will say this morphs into a more current and, and relevant discussion, uh, discussion, which might move us into another area in a minute as well. And that is, I guess, bench, uh, Benchmarks Continued isn't quite a self-published book, but it's certainly a small print-on-demand book from... Um, I, I don't know if you can call Ansible new, a newish publisher, but they've, having published Ansible itself for like a hundred years, but not hasn't published books much, and so out comes this, yeah, it's 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 a POD book from Lulu, which is fine. It's not a qualitative thing, but uh, that book, the, the first book, Benchmarks book, came out more than thirty years ago, and was up yeah. for the Hugo. This book came out uh, in. November of last year, with almost no fanfare at all, you barely knew it had happened, you know. Right. And so, I mean, it first of all goes to show how a book can just completely slide by these days, and how it's difficult to find out about some of these books so that you can lord them and bring them to people's attention. I mean, you're right to say that there's not an enormous market out there for uh, non-fiction books about science fiction, particularly criticism. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if there's only 500 people out there, probably six people heard about this one. Mm. And I, I'm going to imagine that if this book had somehow magically managed to come out in, say, 1987, it probably would have been a Hugo nominee. And I think it actually deserves it, to be a Hugo nominee this year. It, it, it should be a Hugo nominee this year. I mean, it's, it certainly is one of the most interesting and important books about science fiction during a crucial period. Part of the problem, and I would have had David Langford ask me this, I would have, or had he, had he not, I would have given him the unsolicited advice, which I gave to Wesleyan University Press when they were trying to schedule for my, they were trying to schedule my book, Evaporating Genres, for December. 
Um, and I basically said, just put it off a month because that way you have 11 months for people to become aware of it mm-hmm. to make nominations. Yeah. A book that comes out in December from a small press is simply not going to get the attention it deserves because it depends on word of mouth, and word of mouth takes months. Particularly if it's it's a – I mean, okay, a a truly remarkable small press book might battle its way through the Christmas rush somehow. Um, Mm. But by and large, you know, I think you're right. If if you have to work harder to get a PR buzz going for for a book – then that's not the time to be trying to do it, it seems to me. I, I, mean, I might be completely wrong. You might be completely wrong. No. But that's the feeling I have about it. The sense I have about it is I, there, there, was, there was an issue a couple of years ago with the Hugos of a book uh, that came out late in the year. I think it was Istvan Cesare Rone's The Seven Beauties of Science Fiction. Very worthwhile critical book. A little bit densely theoretical for the general reader, but makes yep. very good points about the virtues of science fiction. And it came out late in the year, and I know there was some discussion and a small campaign to to have it considered the following year simply because it hadn't been uh, made people hadn't been aware yeah, of it. Yeah. Now I understand from our friend Cheryl, who will correct me if I'm not wrong. I was about to cast the, the summon Cheryl spell too. Yeah, continue. Uh, Cheryl, we need you here. Is uh, because my understanding is if if a, if a book or a film gets very limited distribution in one year, it could be considered in the year following its normal year of. Yeah, I don't know about okay. that, but I what I was the, the the part of the cast you know, the summon Cheryl spell I was about to cast had to do with the fact that although it's printed online or POD, it's actually published in the UK, and mm-hmm. there is a, that rolling eligibility rule of right. the Hugo's that where people can decide to do it, you know, nominate the next year as well. So I guess theoretically, if people chose to, this could either be eligible this year, which is when it should be eligible, and you should nominate it, or no. This nominant, I would ask you to go and have a look at it. You know, have a look at this book and make your own mind up. I think it's worthy of a Hugo nomination. It's on my Hugo nomination ballot already, mm-hmm. and I trust it will be on yours, Gary. I will be on mine now. Um, you can go back in and revise your ballots. That's one you of the can, things you yes. to understand. Which means, you know, sort of for a few people out there who don't know it yet, if you really irritate me, I can go and take my Hugo nomination back <laughs> for a little while. For a little while, for about another four weeks. And, and then there's that weird time where you know that the Hugo nominations are going out and you wait. Uh, Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noted that period? Or you, are, you are, mean, are, are, not until not until not until you called it to my attention last year. <laughs> I don't. Well, okay, I was going to say I don't follow the Hugos that closely. Of course, this makes a complete lie of it of of what what I'm about to say. But I have mm-hmm. noticed there's this little period, right? Because the Hugo, obviously the Hugo process is quite set. So you know, nominations open in January, they close in March, and then a mm-hmm. certain number of weeks after that, the uh, you know the I guess the emails go out to people saying, do you accept the nomination? Because for the Hugos, you can accept or decline. And then they get announced. And what it means is there's like a probably a two-week period where suddenly you see across the um, the internet, aha, secret news, I cannot tell you anything about it. And you're going, you got nominated for Hugo, didn't you? Of course, yeah, because everybody says that. Everybody blogs the same thing on the same date. I can't tell you anything about it. Uh, big secret. And everybody's, <laughs> why does everybody start spelling it S-E-K-R-I-T? I'm tired of that. You can stop it. But at any rate, secret project is what it always is. I'm not as conscious of that as you are because let's be honest, you're eligible for a Hugo Award every year. No, not and, every year, Gary. Just at the well, there's a best editor. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But I'm, I'm not going to so, get so every year. this year. So. 
And, you know, I'll, I'll do an, occasionally I'll have a book, uh, which, by the way, is frequently not eligible at all. Like the Library of America thing doesn't fit into any category. Um, and then there's our podcast. So only when we started doing this podcast, I started thinking, well, only when we got nominated, they started thinking, oh, well, maybe I should watch the email come March. <laughs> and I don't having to do that. I want you to know. Well, you know, is that why you feel like you know, sort of this podcast could be nominated this year, Gary? I don't think no. Nobody's going to nominate the podcast this Excellent. year. Of course, I'm going to sit around in March seeing what happens. And then you'll get the sad episode of the Cood Street podcast. I don't want to build it up too much in case people go, well, we won't actually nominate them just so we can hear the sad episode. But we'll, you know, we'll we'll both somehow we'll synchronize our alcoholism, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll be in our cups and we'll record a sad podcast about how. I will tell you what the most relaxing thing is from my limited experience with a couple of books, maybe three, and and, and the podcast. The most relaxing thing is to find out that you're nominated, and look at your other nominees and realize you haven't got a chance. Oh, but yeah. you get the thrill and the resolution all in once. Yes, I always think back to the very first time I was nominated for the Hugo's back in two thousand eight which I guess was Denver, and I went there with Charles. And I think, you know, there was this, someone said to me, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. It's going to be terrible if you don't win. And I'm sitting there, and I'm nominated against these giants of the of the, of the the field, and think, you know, I think Datlow and Dazwa, people like that. And I wasn't remotely disappointed, not even for half a second, because it was just like, it ain't never going to happen. So um, I'm really, really thrilled to be here, and it was just fantastic. When it gets hard, I think, is when you feel like you're really, really, really in there with a chance sometime. Well, getting a nomination, I mean, you've, you've mentioned many times, and we've both mentioned... Yeah, sorry, everybody. The, the nominated is, is, is not... But, but to, to, it, it is to this extent that you don't get nominated unless you have some support. That's Unless true. there are people who like what you're doing, and that's, that's about as much as we can ask for. I mean, I think when people are younger, um, you get excited about... I remember the first <laughs> book I wrote, the first book I wrote about science fiction, I should say... Uh, came out in 1979. I know it's a long time ago. I was 15. And, hmm. I was 15. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. continue, please. And by by a, some fluke, I was in a bookstore and I picked up a copy of the Times Literary Supplement, and there was a review of my book and a favorable review of my book. Wow. And I thought, wow, here's this book from a small university press in the United States, and Tom Shippey of all people is reviewing it for TLS. And I've made it. I am, I am world famous now. I'm the, the, I'm the Pulitzer Prize Committee is going to be looking at this book now. And I'm going to get all kinds of recognition. Yeah. Of course, I never heard another word about the book from anybody in the entire world ever. <laughs> it, it did get an award. At, at the, but, but by and large, when you're young, you think anything can happen. Yes, you do. And then at a certain point, you realize if enough people like me to nominate it, that's pretty impressive right there. It's true. Well, speaking of being liked by enough people, Gary, and I don't know whether Aldous Budras is or was liked by enough people to get the Hugo, the posthumous Hugo nomination that he richly deserves, but a bunch of people who are quite popular just got nominated for Nebula Awards. We should talk about the Nebula Awards. Yeah, let's do that. And I should, by the way, just 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 as a, as, as a little guilt trip. Speaking of of, of of Budras again, I was on a radio show uh, in December. We were talking about the Library of America stuff, and and Edna, uh, AJ's wife, called in, oh, yeah. and she she was absolutely delighted. She was thrilled. She was always very proud. She's a delightful woman. She's still, uh, you know, very active. She she would appreciate anybody who wanted to nominate AJ for a Hugo Award, 
In other words, it's not as though he's gone and forgotten. He has a family. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, that, that, yes. I mean, not that for... Not that that's the reason to nominate, but don't think there's no point in nominating, I guess. Go read well, the book. Go read the book. Go read the book and make up your own mind. But somebody thinks that there's no point in nominating um, somebody who is deceased for a Hugo Award because nobody will appreciate it. That's not true. Well, okay, that I agree. But I mean, the real point here is that you know, and I know you know you you actually do agree with this. Read the books, make up your mind. Whether you make the people involved happy or not, I mean, it's it's a win when you do. But the real point is. Recognize the books that you, that you think are important. Right, I agree. Okay, now, what did you think of this year's Nebula Ballot, Gary? I think, well, uh, in the categories I know, now I, I, I precede this by saying I've read less than half of the total nominees. Mm -hmm. And reading some of them now, because uh, because of years' best anthologies like your own, I think you had five of the nominees in your anthology. Oh, yes, in my endless uh, volume, yeah. But that's not... Um, it's It's... There, there are books on every category of the list that I, books and stories that I, I am excited about. Uh, I don't think it's a dynamite list overall. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense? I don't know if you do this, uh, but I don't anymore. For a long time, I would look at Nebula nominees and Hugo nominees, mm -hmm. and then Wild World Fantasy nominees, and think I have to go out and read these books right away. Yeah. Oh no, I don't feel that anymore, Gary. Um, and that sounds probably really, really bad, but what I really mean by it, as I was saying, in fact, last night, uh, with the demands in our time and the volume of work being published, you get, t you, you know, any work that's published gets, it's, it, it's 30 seconds when it's in front of you the first time to maybe re you decide to read it or not. It's bid to have you read it or not for, you know, during that, maybe mm -hmm. another 10 minutes and that's it. And then you never see it again. You know, the, the fact that the idea that the way I read now or that you read now, that, I'm going to look at a 20, well, 2012 awards ballot and go back and read stuff that I missed is just not going to happen okay. uh, because I can't keep up with what – I mean, I've got books to read now. I just got the new well, – you've already read it, the new Nilo Hopkinson to read. Um, because I'm reading slowly and distracted, uh, I'm adoring it, but I'm still not at the end of the Guy Gabriel K book. And I've got books lined up till, from here until Christmas. So as intrigued as I am about some of the things that are nominated, I'm not going to get back to read, read these things, unfortunately. But people do, and I used to, certainly. There was a time in my life when I would have, yes. I would have gone through, like, the novel list. I think there are six novels nominated this year when there's normally five. Mm -hmm. um, I would have highlighted the, the ones I didn't have. I would have ordered them right away, and I would have sat down and I've read them and formed my own opinion about what I thought about the, the uh, nominations from the science fiction and fantasy writers for America. I, th I do see trends this year. I mean, this is always what we're asked about. Are there, is there a movement toward a particular kind of fiction? It's pretty well. You mean, let, let's start with the novel ballot, right? It's, it's pretty hard to say. So, I mean, there's one book that I had never even heard of on the ballot, which I should have, which is the Tina Connolly book. It just completely slipped by me. I probably saw a brief description of it 18 months ago or something, and that's. I remember seeing it. I remember reading about it. And this is one of the two. There are two novels I think of a piece on this in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, Tina Conley novel appears to be essentially a, a, a tribute to, to Jane Eyre, to Charlotte Bronte, with, with fairies in it, with Faye. Mm -hmm. uh, Faye used to be a critical term which was fairly disparaging, and now it describes a whole genre. <laughs> but, <laughs> but is it still disparaging? <laughs> okay. Well, no, no. There's a difference between writing something that's Faye and writing something that features the, the Faye. With Faye in it. Okay, so that's good. But, but essentially, Tina Conley's book 
alludes to um, Charlotte Bronte, probably in the same way that Mary Robinette Cole's sequel yeah. uh, to her first relates to Jane Austen. Yes. Um, and I have talked to Mary about this, and I've, I've not read Glamour and Glass. I have no doubt that these books do exactly what they set out to do and do them very well. Yeah. Um, at the same time, these are two books which 20 or 30 years ago would never have been nominated for a Nebula Award. Uh, okay, in what sense? Clarify your comments. I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm, I'm curious as to what you mean. Partly because I went back 20 and 30 years and looked at the Nebula Awards were much more heavily weighted towards science fiction okay. at that point. So, so, so that's really what you mean. They've, they've changed them, themselves to, to uh, science fiction and fantasy, and now the, the awards much more overtly include fantasy. Okay. Um, it, it, a broader variety of fantasy. There yeah, is this kind of fair enough. literature based fantasy. It's almost a subgenre. Literature, and I'm not talking about horrible things like uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I'm talking about the what they used to call manor punk. Uh, okay, yeah, yes, yes. Or um, what was the other term? Uh, there were a couple of terms that were floating yeah. around. Well, um, I mean, yeah. But that's a legitimate subset of the field, and it wasn't 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Now, I, I guess we could start by saying, and we maybe should have, uh, things that strike me about the novel ballot particularly. There's two first novels on, on, on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite markedly uh, different books, one that I've read, one that I've not. There's Throne of the Crescent Moon by Saladin Ahmed, which, whilst it does have some of the issues that first novels can have, still is a really energetic take on sword and sorcery in an Arabic kind of a setting. And I guess is in- interesting because, apart from being a good first novel, um, because there is that question about uh, the author's own background and how that resonates with the story at hand. There's um, a strong new novel by someone who's made a, a, quite a name for herself in... Uh, the Killing Moon by Nora Jemison, which I think is uh, a standalone, or is it the last book in the series? I, f- I forget off the top of my head. I think, it's, I think it's the last book in the set, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's the final in the, in the well, it's the second in the Dream Blood set. set so, mm-hmm. uh, so there's that. There are there, there's uh, Mary Robinette Kowal's uh, Glamour and Glass, which is the third in her Jane Austen series. I think it's the second. Second, okay. Because I know there's one coming as well because people are talking about it. Okay, and then there's good. there's two of my books of the year, quite disparate books. There's The Drowning Girl by Caitlin Kiernan, which I'm just delighted to see on the Nebula ballot. Uh, I think that's a, a fa- I would not have anticipated it, frankly. I think this is another example of a book that would not have been on, on this ballot 20 or 30 years oh, ago. I think that's probably so. And it's to everyone's credit that it is there. And then there's Stan Robinson's you know, latest book, 2312, which we've talked about a lot, just as we have about the Kiernan, which is one of the major books of the year, and is exactly the kind of book I'd have expected to see here. So it's an interesting well, ballot. Well, it's an interesting ballot, and one of the things that's interesting about it, again, compared with past ballots, which I went back and looked at, is that really the, there's only one science fiction novel on the novel list. Sure. Well, well yeah, uh, I mean, certainly if you, if you go back 10 years, uh, there's only one fantasy, oh, there's two fantasy novels on the ballot. And if you go back twenty, there's probably none. Um, yeah, there's not. No, there is. There's one. There's two. Just get out of town. I mean, if you, I, I call you, Gary. In 2012, uh, there's what one, two, three, four. In fact, five fantasy novels on the list. Uh-huh. In 2000, which I guess isn't quite ten years ago. Wow. Uh, there's Clash um, of Kings and Mockingbird. And if you run back 10 years before that, you've got um, Ivory by Mike Resnus, Predis Alvin by Scott Card, and Sister Light, Sister Dark. So they did two get on the ballot. Well, okay. Uh, let me let me go back to um, 
1993. This is oh wow, this is selective picking. Oh, well, I know. Come it's, on. It's yeah. Uh, but but what what you have in 1993, which is 20 years ago, um, the winner was Connie Willis's The Doomsday Book. Yep. And then uh, the rest are science fiction, except for Jane Yellen's Briar Rose and possibly Karen Joy Fowler's Sarah Canary, which when some people think it, yeah. science fiction and some people yeah. think is. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But, uh, but so yeah, I, th- I think that by and large there's a there's a shift in sensibility there. Sure. I think uh, the thing that strikes me as being really Im- I'm, I'm I'm impressed just the same way you are, is that the Caitlin Kiernan's A Drowning Girl, which apart from genre considerations, subgenre considerations, theme considerations, um, I the more I think about it, and I'm going to have to read it again, the more I think this is this is one of the possibly great novels of the last ten years. Oh, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, I think the thing that will make it stand out, and it'll take us five years to have a strong idea of it, and maybe ten to know, is what it's mm-hmm. like to, to, you know, how it's reread and how it's continued to be read. Uh, I think it d- deserves to continue to be read. I, I hope that it, c- you know, continues to sort of remain in print and to remain the dialogue of the field as Kiernan continues to grow and evolve as a writer. But I think it's a major, major book. I expect it to win awards this year. I'm just thrilled it's here. Well, I don't know anything about Tina Connolly either. I know that Nora Jemison is is on is, has started a very impressive career. Mm, yes, uh, first novel in the first trilogy was very impressive. Uh, Mary Robinette Koal has certainly at this point staked out a very distinct territory with novels. She has more variety in her short fiction. Yeah, well, I mean, um, in fairness, I mean, I, I think I, I'd be very, very fair to Mary, and I know you're not trying to be unfair. Her, her novels are one series so far, so you know. Until, That's true. And sure. until she, you know, she, she, get, she completes that series and moves on to doing something else, which one day she will, um, we won't know. And I think the short fiction nominees are an interesting array. I mean, as is the case with any single reader, I'm sure it's for you, I would have picked different things. Well, but, you know more short fiction than I do. Well, and mostly I mean, this, yeah. But this is why I depend on, on, on years best, not only yours, but all the others as well. This is when I tend to read the past year's fiction. Yeah. And there are... Uh, I, a couple of these were standalones. Yeah. Which is okay. The uh, LA production. I, I guess and what it's yeah. I guess what I'd say about it though is that even what what you want when you look at a ballot like this as a reader, I guess, is if there's stuff you wouldn't have put on there yourself, you want to understand or be able to understand why it's there. Okay. So there's a few things on the list that I would not have nominated. There are a bunch that they would have. But I can mostly in most parts I can you know I remember the stories. I can understand it. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I mean, uh, if I look at the novella ballot, I mean, one of the things I'd honestly say about that is, I mean, for my best of the year, for example, I can only fit one or two novellas in. Catabasis by Robert Reed is on the ballot, which is in my best of the year. Mm. But the the, the Bodard story, The Crest, The Lake, um, all very fine stories. I'm familiar with them. I've not actually, I don't think I've read the, the Lawrence Schoen in this case, but uh, the others I've certainly read and I'm familiar with and think they make a thoroughly fine list. Uh, and you know, going down the um, say the novelette ballad, I think I think I've got the Duncan, mm. the McCarran, the Swirsky, and the Valenti in my book. Um, yeah. But I have you know I clearly recall you know I know the Leosaro and the Lou and the Mandela and they're all strong stories. Um, and you know for the uh, for shorts, I mean I I know all the stories. Some of them I like better than I like others. I mean for example Ken Lou who um, is all over the ballad again. Yeah. My fa- my preferred Ken Lu story of the year isn't here, but I but I know these and I I, I like them. 
somebody did ask the question on Twitter of me, you know, uh, did I think that Ken Liu was going to go on to be the most awards-nominated writer of all time? And I have to say that, you know, given that Ken, who has had a remarkable start to his career and is a fine writer, has probably had a, a dozen or more, I don't know, nominations, mm-hmm. and given that our, you know, our friend and, and, well, I would say friend of this parish, but he's unlikely to be on the podcast, but um, our friend Bob Silverberg has, according to the, the uh, Science Fiction Awards database, received 212 awards nominations stacked up against uh, Ken's 12. Well, what about... I think that Bob's got a bit of a lead before uh, Ken catches up. Well, and what about... I, I'm sure Ellison has to be in the same category and probably Connie Willis. Some of them are, yeah. But, I mean, Bob is actually head, head and shoulders winner in terms of nominations well, I mean, in the field. They're, they're, but, uh, be honest, there's... In, in a way, 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, there was a much narrower range. And if you were one of the major writers in the field in that period, you were going to get nominated year after year after year. Well, um, yes, that's true. And you have to be a quality writer. I'm not saying you aren't. I'm, let me see. The, the earliest ne- – I just went back and looked at the earliest Nebula Awards I've got for short fiction, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, going, going, going back to 1973 – You've got names like Paul Anderson it's in the short fiction categories. Paul Anderson, Alfred Bester, Hal, mm-hmm. Harlan Ellison, Kate Wilhelm, David Gerald, Gardner Dozois, uh, and William Rotzler. Uh, yeah. The usual, and, and the short story winner that year, interestingly enough, was Joanna Ross for yeah. when it changed. But by and large, year after year, you would expect to see Silverberg, who was nominated for short story that year. Uh, you would expect to see Silverberg. You would expect to see Ellison, probably Connie Willis, probably. Uh, and now there's just a broader field. So I think it's my point is I think it's more impressive now when oh, a young sure gets a lot of nominations than it was it can when be. there yeah. were a handful of superstars dominating the awards. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the top 10 most nominated according to the database, uh-huh. uh, which would be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Yeah. Okay. I'll give from the from the bottom up. At number 10, tied, it's Lucia Shepard and Mike Resnick. And mm-hmm. what you're going to notice is, what I'm going to say to you, first of all, is that it's heavily gender biased, partly because you have to go back a long way to get to rack up the necessary 159 nominations to come in at 10th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second of all, it's still weighted towards the last 30 years or 25 years, I guess, because there are more and more awards and polls to be nominated for. Well, yeah, total awards. Okay. So then you're you got Mike. Yeah. Nebulas now. No, this is this is all awards and polls. Total awards, okay. Okay. So then you've got Michael Whalen at number number. Eight, Not Stephen Stephen King at number seven, less surprising. Uh, Con- Connie Willis with 165 nominations, and a wow. staggering 51 wins. Wow, which is a bit staggering. Uh, Michael Swanwick coming in above her with 168. Uh, uh, the, the prolific anthologists <laughs> Ellen Datlow uh, and Gardner Dozois coming at um, whatever it is, four and three. And the top mm-hmm. two most nominated ones, the ones that I think everyone would actually pick, Ursula Le Guin with 207 nominations and Robert Silverberg with 278. Now, if you skim out polls and all that kind of thing and just major awards, it's actually Le Guin and King and Whalen who are the top three most nominated. Mm-hmm. And if you slice it back to the, what are considered to be the most, you know, to be the the, you know, the major awards in the field, it'll probably get closer to what you'd expect. Uh, in, uh, in the sense that suddenly um, 
Ellison makes it a, a thing, but the most nominated in the major awards is Michael Whalen and Bob Eggleton in the in the arts awards, I guess, for the Hugos, um, and then Datlow and Le Guin and Ellison. So yeah, but anyway, uh, the, the staggering numbers of wins. So to get up there, you really have to kind of get out there and start, you know, uh, getting stuff. On yeah, the but, but, but Lou's start is remarkable, and as I said to somebody the other day, he will always be um, discussed, if only because uh, his story. In fact, Ian Mondo is talking to. Uh, his story from last year uh, won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy, and that's always gotten him. He's been the first one who ever did it. He may be the only person who ever does it. So you know, that's kind yeah, of- that's unusual. That's odd. And, well, I think part of the reason for that, though, is that the awards, um, the the definitions of the awards have tend to bro- tended to broaden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the Nebula Award is much more fantasy oriented than it was twenty or thirty years ago. Uh, the Shirley Jackson Award is new, but it more or less covers uh, horror and, and fantasy and might include some science fiction. World Fantasy Award covers anything except science fiction. Sure, sure. So by, so by and large, there's a lot. And, and the Hugo Award could be fantasy, science fiction, theoretically, I suppose, horror even uh, e- even now. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I th- the other thing is that I think you do have uh, some influence by by the diversification of the genre, which is always a good thing. And um, well, the this well, diversification of venues where people can encounter fiction. Well, can, can I say, you see, I think there's going to be an interesting thing um, because with the paper menagerie winning last year, all of the three majors really made me stop and have a little bit of a think about about this issue and about diversity. And there are d- different kinds of diversity. There is biodiversity, if you like, in the sense that different people from different social and whatever areas and everything are being nominated. And as Rose Fox pointed out in her uh, comments on Publishers Weekly, uh, you know, there are men, women, they're gay, straight, there's uh, racially diverse, all that kind of thing. So lots of, lots of that kind of diversity um, on the ballot, which is great. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you're going to see a narrowing in the range of ti- the number of titles nominated because there's such a staggering number of things being published. I wonder if people are going to, to get some kind of co- consensus and discussion, focus in actually on, 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 on a smaller subset of stuff coming out. You know, I have to kind of like cast those thousands out there into the wilderness and, and seek commonality. And if that, you know, and you'll find like this this year, what stands out? One thing that stands out is that you know, uh, this, a lot of the stuff that get, has been nominated is available online, and if it's not available well, online, I think, I think it's not getting nominated. I, yeah, I, I think people are beginning to settle in on certain venues to look for. Again, hmm. comparing this to ten or twenty years past, I, I, I tied up some figures here. Okay, of the twenty short fiction nominees uh, this year, five of them come from Asimov's. Or FNSF. Those are the only two traditional professional yeah. magazines. That's that's a quarter of them. The rest are from uh, you know Clark's World. They're from Tor.com. They're from Lightspeed. In other words, but but places like Clark's World and Tor.com and Lightspeed are beginning to settle out as the places you look for quality fiction. I think in terms of these awards nominators, at least. Okay, I have to say this. I mean, that, yes, there are places. There, there are places to look for quality fiction. Yes, so I'm not quibbling with that. But there are also places to get easily accessible fiction to read when you're uh, reading up for the nebulas that are linked from the SFWA bulletin boards to the stories online. I think that's true. Um, but a lot of Asimov's stories are online also, especially when... Uh, are they? 
Well, the ones that get nominated tend to be. But this is before they're nominated, so they're well, online now. Right, before you're nominated, yeah, this is, this is true. Uh, so, to some extent, universally accessible stories have a distinct advantage over magazines that uh, initially print the stories and send them out to the subscribers. And in fact, I'm just going to take a, a quick punt, and I'm right, I didn't even check until this moment. Not a single story from an anthology is nominated. Um, wait a minute. The Mammoth Book of SF War. Oh, hang on, one. Sorry, no, you're right. One. There's one. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to make a quick check because I have, a, I have a theory, and that was okay. So yeah, one story, and Catherine Asaro, who's nominated, is is that well was that active and is well known in uh, SFWA circles. So mm-hmm. it's a small nominating pool. And, I mean, I know because I used to be an affiliate member of SFWA, I'm not at the moment, uh, that links to all these stories are published on, on a private bulletin board. And so it's if you upload your story and if it's readily available. So, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's its own form of narrow focus. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this continues because I think... Yeah. Well, yeah. The other thing will be interesting is, is, if, is, is to identify, because you're talking about Ken Liu, for example, there are identifiably a number of younger writers who are becoming the regulars on these nomination ballots in sure. the way that Ellison and Silverberg and Le Guin used to be. Rachel Swirsky is one of them. Ken Liu is one of them. Uh, there was not a Ted Chang story out this year, or you know he'd be here. Well, I, I, yeah, but I don't think you can. No, you can't put him in that group. I mean, I'm sorry, Gary. He's been writing he's, since he's, for, for he's, 20 he's, years or something. Okay, so he belongs in an earlier generation, and he so does. does Robert. But, but okay, Robert, the ones you can expect are certainly Lou, Swirsky, Valenti, de Bodard, um, maybe Rambo. Maybe. Now more Devana Headley. She's becoming known, um, uh, Maria Devana Headley. So, yeah, there is. And I th- also think we should actually take, make, take, sorry, make a quick nod or give a quick nod to Elliot de Bodard, who uh, is all over this ballot, actually. I think this is her – I don't think it's her, her first – major set of nominations but she's up for a novella novelette and short story i think mm-hmm. um and actually i don't i think she's a strong ca- uh, chance in any of those categories but particularly strong in short story where she's probably my pick for the best of the short story nominees with immersion which i think is a terrific story mm-hmm. you know um or did i misread no she's not up for novelette sorry just novella and short story okay but it's still that's two and that's a all, all of which is very impressive for somebody who I believe writes in English as a second language. I believe she's. she's I don't know for sure, speaks, but yeah, I, I, she's French. I, she th- I'm pretty sure she speaks French at home and grew up learning mm. English in high school or something. Yeah, but, but you know the one category, the one category you've not mentioned is the Andre Norton Award, which is well, technically, no, I guess, not nominated. We haven't mentioned the Ray Bradbury Award either because we don't oh, care. Yeah. La 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 la. By the way, uh, going back to something I meant to say earlier about the Solid and Ahmed novel, which I which I, I read part of and looks like a lot of fun. You it read is the whole book, thing. Yeah. It was it was a finalist for the uh, Crawford, Crawford Award. Yes, it was. Yes, indeed. And the other finalist, we'll get back. We'll get to the Bradbury Awards in a minute. Uh, the other finalist, which shows up on this long list of Andre Norton Awards, was Rachel Hartman's Serafina, which was very yep. impressive. Yes. Unfortunately, the others on this list. Outside of Railsea by China Mieville, the others I have not read. Oh, there's three others I've read there, Gary, or two, two others oh. and one that Marianne read. So, there's Blackheart by Holly Black, which concludes her Curse Worker series, and I thought was a terrific book. 
Uh, it's hard. Yeah, I, I was re- reading something else where someone was talking about the the concept of under appreciated and um, under recognized and everything. And Holly's very popular, and she's a big name in our field now. Uh, but this series really never quite got the the buzz I think it deserved, and it's a very strong conclusion to an interesting series. Uh, Libba Bray, who is terrific, starts off a really fun book. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a great deal, The Diviners, which is her um, X Files meets uh, Prohibition kind okay. of kind of book. Um, you're, you're in. There are flappers. I'm in with that. I totally. Yeah, the, the lead character flapper. It's huge fun. And she's working away on the sequel. And Marianne read uh, Every Day by David Levitan, which, according, uh-huh. according to Marianne and every other review that I've heard, uh, is stunningly spectacular. So there's some good stuff there. It's, and I also note that one of Pyre's first YA novels is on there as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, an interesting list. Now, should we talk about the Ray Bradbury Award for Outstanding? La, 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 la. Don't care. Yeah, all right. You can if you want. What do you want to talk about? Oh, okay. Look, I've seen... <laughs> I've seen. I've seen three of them. All of these films. I've, I've seen, seen three. I can't say that about the Oscars, which are tomorrow night. <laughs> but I've seen all of these films. Yes. And I and, and I enjoyed all of these films in completely different ways. And I don't understand what this award is supposed to be for. Me either. I mean, you've got you've got a classic space opera. I'm glad John Carter is there because. It, it completely tanked as a movie, and yet, as many science fiction fans recognized, it pretty much captured the flavor of the Burroughs novels. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Which means it was dumb. When the, Burroughs, <laughs> the flavor of the Burroughs novels includes being dumb, and you have to enjoy dumbness. A particular kind of dumbness, I guess, yeah, sure. Yeah, The Hunger Games, a novel uh, adaptation. Um, the Avengers, a comic book adaptation. Cabin in the Woods, a metafiction about horror movies, mm-hmm. which is actually very ingenious. And then... Um, Looper, which is all right, uh, yeah. it's 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 something that works out the logic of its time loop stuff. But beyond that, it's basically a thriller. Yeah. And Beasts of the Southern Wild, which may or may not even be a fantasy, depending on how you read it. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, I'm not seeing the Avengers, which I enjoyed, the Hunger Games, which I enjoyed, John Carter, which in its own way I enjoyed. I took Sophie to see John Carter, hmm. believe it or not, and we and she enjoyed it as well. Um. I have to be careful about being too dismissive of the dramatic categories because it makes me sound like an even older fart than everybody thinks I might be. Um, but for some reason, it's like the same as with the Hugo's, Gary. I, I just can't kind of get motivated about the, about it. I don't I don't feel the passion, Gary. Well, here's the thing: uh, the Hugo Awards. I don't know when this change was made. When the rules changed, it's now the Ray Bradbury Award for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation. Mm-hmm. There used to be a Hugo Award just for script. Which was yes. another writing award, and it made sense to me to make those people who write TV episodes or movies eligible for Nebula Awards as writers. Yep. Now it seems to be an award for a movie. Dramatic presentation is not the same thing as best script. No, it's and I not. Don't know that changed. No. And I'm going back 10 years ago. The Nebula yep. Awards still had a category for script. The winner was uh fran walsh and felissa what's her name all the people who wrote the script for the, the the fellowship of the ring okay it's an impressive script it really is an impressive script uh buffy the vampire slayer got nominated uh, shrek got nominated but the point is at that point it was still a writing award now it seems to be a movie award it seems to be and i mean look good luck to them all i mean you know yay but i, I don't yeah like i said do, doesn't resonate with me struggle to find a great deal of interest in it as you can probably pick up 
Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> probably not to my credit that I feel that way, but yeah, I do. So there you go. I think one of the things about these awards is that you know perfectly well that the people who are nominated for them don't care. That is the feeling I would have about them, Gary. Yes. I would suspect they don't. I would be quite surprised if if they um if they did. Quite quite surprised. Yeah, a Hugo or a Nebula award for John Carter is not going to save it from oblivion. A Hugo or a Nebula award for I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that Steven Spielberg was nominated for Hugo's probably back for E.T. and who knows? Various... Uh, I don't think they existed then, did they? Yeah, the the entire science fiction community en masse is not going to make a slightest bit of difference in the final worldwide gross of a movie like E.T. No, 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 not at all. Ah, oh, well, anyway, interesting ballot. Good luck to everybody. Um, Good luck, I guess, I guess somebody from Locust will go down to the uh, awards in San Jose. What's well, only in San Jose? In San Jose, yeah. But not, uh, not, not, in, the, does, uh, not in the World Fantasy so, Hotel, which is a pity. I, I, just as a, as a parenthesis, the things that I know of on the list, there's nothing here where I would oh, scream no, no. out, how could you do that? Hey, Gary, you have to go. San Jose? When is it? Do, 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 do. It's May, May the 16th to the 19th, and I'll tell you why you have to go in a second. But do, 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 do. I do know the way to San Jose. You kind of fly to San Francisco and then you follow the road signs. It's really pretty easy. Because, so oh. you know, really the, the, uh, the, the song doesn't really give you the idea. Why do I have to go, Jonathan? Interesting, you should ask. They will be nom- mm. not honoring Gene Wolfe as the uh, Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master. Oh. You see? See, you have to go. Ha ha. I'll have to ask Gene if he's going. <laughs> well, I guess there is that. Yeah, if 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 Gene's not if Gene's not gonna go, I don't see why you should go. Gene's not gonna go. I'm not gonna go unless he wants me to pretend to be him, which would be fun. Not very convincing. Well, you see, the flaw in your plan there was we had him on the podcast so people can tell your voices apart. Otherwise, you're identical. Yeah, I know that's a problem. Ah, <laughs> oh, Gary. Oh, Gary, Gary, Gary. So. So where are we here? We've been talking for over an hour, am I right? Or just about well, an hour? About an hour, so we can probably we can probably stop everybody and let you all get on with your day. I have to go sort of have a shower and then go down to this talk. I should point out that uh, Bob Silverberg is his first new book out this month in 10 years, I think, or as close to Excellent. that. Excellent. A new Marja Poor Short Story Collection. And I've read a number of those, and they're, they're, they're interesting stories, so uh, always worth checking out. Bob, who, yeah, we should have on the podcast, I think. We should get Bob on the podcast. And, uh, every, every time you mention Bob, um, although both of them would hate me for thinking about this, it makes me think, since the two of them were so close back in the 50s, that Harlan Ellison has a series of reprints coming out from Subterranean Press now of his non-science No, 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 no. He doesn't have a series. Oh. He's got the, these two books that, that have come out, uh, that are coming out, Gentleman Junkie and the other one, whatever it is. I'll have to look it up. That's all? I, I'm not aware of there being any others planned at the moment, and okay. I have inquired to that effect. Okay, let's find out about that. <clears throat> but I will say that whilst I don't, <laughs> I'm not necessarily that interested in either of the two books, I probably want to buy them because they're so lovely looking. 
They're lovely looking, absolutely, and they, they have a good 50s vibe to the cover illustration. But yes, let us let let us harass Bob and see if we can get him on the podcast. Yes, and I guess we could even do this, though. We'll probably not get around to following up on it. If there's someone that you think should be on the podcast, and someone did suggest someone to me this week, Gary, then we'll, we might see about getting them on. Someone was suggested, su- suggesting that we should get Jonathan Macklemont of this parish on the podcast, and we did talk absolutely. about doing it, so we should yeah. arrange that at some point in the coming months. The only issue, as I pointed out to that uh, person who made the, the inquiry about it, was that um, it's always a little tricky linking up with the UK because, you know, we're already in two different time zones, so factoring in a third is always a little bit tricky. Right. Because there's a whole slew of people from the UK who uh, we would love to talk to. It may be that some of these will wait until uh, we revisit the whole let's go to world fantasy and make podcasts kind of thing, and if we're over the trauma of last year, we will attempt it again, and we might talk to some people there. Yeah, I will definitely do. I will definitely do backups this time. You will there. bloody definitely do backups. And meanwhile, meanwhile, you'll be going possibly to the national convention. I'll be going possibly to Wisconsin, possibly to ICFA. Yes. And we might pick up some podcasts from there as well. And until then, Gary, I guess we'll you know we'll exhort everybody to sort of read fine things, comment on the podcast if you find it interesting, and remember that this is the kind of waffle you get if you read science fiction for too long. I know. It started with me with A.J. Budras, and it's his fault. Bastard. I know, and he's dead, and he can't talk back. Sorry, Edna. (laughs) (laughs) Until next week, Gary, it's been a pleasure as always. As, As always with you, Jonathan. Okay. Until next week. Bye.